0: and welcome to the TalkSpot. I'm Tim Scott, and following on from the last episode, which was recorded live during the Factor Conference, today we're going to bring you some short interviews we recorded during the conference with some of the people who were there. You'll hear some noise in the background. These were recorded during breaks in the program, so people are having their lunch or a cup of coffee. Hope you enjoy the interviews.
1: So here we are at a 2019 Factor meeting in Adelaide, and I'm speaking with Ginny Yang. She's uh, the recipient of the inaugural Olive Drummer Education Scholarship, which is awarded by Factor. How are you, Ginny?
2: I'm good, thank you. It's been a really good conference for the past few days.
1: There's been uh, a lot of different stuff happening here, and we're learning a lot. Yours and a couple of other papers are a little bit different, but we're talking about metabolomics, and I thought it would be good for you to sort of explain to us what metabolomics is all about.
2: So metabolomics is one of the newly emerging types of techniques. So it mainly, in basic, what it wants to do is you have three different groups. So you have a control group and then also two groups that have totally different diseases. So it relies heavily on statistical analysis like chemometrics or principal component analysis. So what we try to do is we have a control group. Um, In this case, a control group needs to be quite carefully chosen as well. But I'm really lucky that the Children's Hospital at Westmead is actually doing this for me and we are collaborating with them as well and the other two groups they need to be quite different as well so sometimes we can say one group can be a treated group and the other group is an untreated group or we just have um, two totally different conditions so for example um, a group that is high in neuroinflammation or low neuroinflammation and the statistical analysis will tell us if there are any unique metabolites that maybe change in um, one group from another
1: so in this case we're talking about uh, not drug metabolites but actually um, endogenous metabolites of serotonin and other uh Neurochemicals.
2: Yes. So we're more interested in neurotransmitters and their metabolites. So in recent years, they have become a more significant clinical tool. They are quite also involved in the toxicology field. So in my presentation, I did mention that some of the ones like tryptophan and serotonin and also um, GABA and glutamate is also more commonly involved in the field now. So they're more established in terms of central nervous disorders.
1: So, um, from the presentations I saw, you end up with uh, samples from different groups, and you uh, you don't necessarily need to know the actual metabolites that you're looking for. Is that the case?
2: Yeah, so right now what we're doing is some of the untargeted metabolomics work, which, so I'm using pooled cerebrospinal fluids. So another uniqueness of this method is using this matrix. So this matrix is one of the really invasive ones and also challenging to obtain samples from, which is why we're not actually working with a real clinical trial yet. Just because of the method development stages, we want to fill in that gap in literature.
1: So this is cerebral spinal fluid, correct?
2: Yes, cerebrospinal fluids. Yeah.
1: Yep. How do you get hold of that sort of material?
2: Um, so we're really lucky that our collaborator, the Children's Hospital at Westmead, have a cerebrospinal fluid bank, and this is something that's not really commonly seen across hospitals, so I'm really lucky to be working with them.
1: Sounds great. Now, how are you going to use your travel scholarship or your education award?
2: Um, So I'll be using this to attend TAFT in 2019 in Birmingham and also the travel scholarship also includes a tour to another lab in the European. So that is yet to be decided.
1: That's very exciting. Well, good luck with your trip and um, all the best. Thanks very much for joining us, Ginny. Thank you. Olaf Drummer, thank you very much for joining us on the Talkspot. My pleasure. It was very interesting to see your talk the other day about revisiting how toxic cannabis may be. How did this come about?
3: Well, look, uh, as we've seen the last five to ten years in Australia and around the world, there's been quite a few deaths reported from synthetic cannabinoids. And while some are perhaps more potent than THC on uh, cannabinoid receptor, nevertheless, uh, pathologists are very happy to, to ascribe them to a cause of death, providing no other competing factors. And so my thought was, well, over the years we've ignored uh, THC present in cases where uh, there are no other obvious anatomical cause of death. So my first point of call was to uh, review the literature see what had been published. And I I was aware of at least one publication of deaths from a Norwegian article back in 2001. Uh, And I found uh, there were quite a number of uh, fatalities reported from pathologists who were... Uh, seeing cases and as far as they were concerned they thought cannabis or the THC present cannabis and recent use of cannabis was at least a part cause of their death right. and um, at the same time over the last several years there have been uh over 30 uh, publications of case reports and series of case reports of admissions to hospitals of survivors all of whom were regarded by the emergency physicians as having Based on circumstance, recent use of THC, quite often quite a high use of THC, um, and a cardiac event, so chest pain, uh, they diagnosed some form of arrhythmias, some had um, an infarction, so they had raised enzyme levels, so there actually was damage to to muscle tissue in the heart, proving there was a heart attack, but no prior history of heart disease. Some had um, a blood clot, thrombus, causing a minor stroke. And so they reported that they all survived, but clinically they were regarded as, as being there because of their cannabis intoxication. And so
1: they are basically all sort of um, cardiovascular issues? Yeah, they were all the cardiovascular
3: experience. issues. And it was well known, we, we've known for many years, uh, that cannabis um, causes increases in heart rate, uh, cardiac output, and has a blood pressure effects too from time to time. So it wasn't that it was a, an unusual observation, unusual sense that they actually had... Symptoms of a heart attack, some heart, heart attack symptoms some had, an arrhythmias that, that subsided once the drug cleared his system. Uh, and there are also some epidemiological studies looking at association of cardiovascular disease and sudden ischemic deaths from uh, cannabis use. And and they were they were variable in terms of their outcomes, but uh, I think it's pretty clear that given the use of cannabis around Australia, around the world, it's not a, a big risk factor in that.
1: Yeah, so compared to... 10% of people
3: who make cannabis collapse and die or go to hospital. It's a little
1: bit different to synthetic cannabinoids, I guess, where they still have the cardiovascular issues. Yeah, so symptomology
3: is similar, except probably they're using high doses because they're powders, not a bit of THC and cannabis material, leaf material. So they're probably using high doses. Some were more potent on the uh, CB1 receptor. Uh, But nevertheless, they were having similar effects on the body uh, to cannabis. And the CB1
1: receptors, are they mainly located... They're mainly
3: located in the brain. Yeah. And so, in, in obviously, you know, there's response to uh, heart rate and on the heart itself, as well as on the brain and to the cognition and yep. behavioural yep. changes. But predominantly, they're affecting the heart and nerves nerve sort of control of the heart rate sure. and, and arrhythmias uh, that was causing these, these problems. And as I said, there were quite a number of publications that were linked to, and so... Um, I was postulating that if um, a pathologist has a case where there's no obvious anatomical cause of death, like injuries or significant natural disease of some type, and there's evidence of recent use of cannabis and proven by the lab doing THC levels, and it's, it's, it's there showing these relatively recent use. So there's some temporal relation between usage and a collapse, and in this case a sudden death then it would not be inappropriate to actually include THC, at least as a part cause of death. So it might well be minor heart disease plus THC, if there was some minor heart disease, but not of itself, sufficient to normally be a cause of death. To
1: draw the link. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: So that was really the basis of um, my paper.
1: So there was a review of many documents. Do you think uh, that will change the people's focus when they see THC in cases now?
3: Well, I think we'll see how time develops. Certainly the Institute... um, been discussed and uh, the head of the institute has been involved in, in uh, writing up the paper so he will he uh, obviously will look or for these cases with his own pathologists, and look, around the world paper's now been published in forensic science international and so they'll have a much more wider focus simply just a, a local focus the time will tell whether pathologists actually take on that and um sure because it's been excluded it's been just a nuisance factor in non-driver sort of cases. A sort of bit um, like small amounts of caffeine and nicotine. Um, it doesn't appear in any statistics. So when you know we're talking about medicinal cannabis and prescribing cannabis to people with certain diseases, um, or even decriminalising cannabis because it's not so yes. dangerous, then mm. because it's not in statistics because people are ignoring its effects, therefore it's seen by people outside the system as being a benign, relevant safe drug. So I'm just trying to um, paint a picture of that. It's probably not as benign as some people think. And also as part of the review, what also came out while I was focused on cardiovascular issues, it's been well known to cause arteritis, so inflammation of the arteries. Inflammation leading to amputation of limbs, so quite serious. Uh, hyperemesis syndrome, where they just completely, they're vomiting all the time, they're vomiting, so that's a pretty serious outcome, but they're so all heavy users. Are they
1: going to be likely due to cannabinoid effects? Yes, yeah, or, so or it's, more it's, the smoking it's regarded religion.
3: as being an effect on stomach, receptor right. stomach, rather than, normally it's used as an antiemetic, yeah. or can be, but high dose use, sense of effect uh, the stomach causes hyperemesis so you know hmm. uncontrolled vomiting which is obviously pretty serious yeah. as well as you know long-term use leads to cancers we've known that for some years now throat cancers, lung cancers psychosis If people have high those users that often resolves if they stop using the stuff so it certainly has effects um, not just um, on perhaps uh, affecting driving skills yes.
1: And also bearing in mind, there's such a large um, user group of THC. There's still only a small proportion of people who are getting these effects.
3: Yes, well, we don't know exactly. There's no statistics there, but we do know that it, uh, with the drug and alcohol rehab centres around the country, over the last 10 and 20 years, as the strength of cannabis has increased. There's more and more presentations to those centres for psychosis yeah. that wasn't really seen much with low dose, low strength THC. So. Now they usually resolve. Um, some associated with schizophrenia as well with long-term use. That's not quite uh, well established, given they may have mental illness or pre-position mental illness who happen to be using, wanting to use cannabis rather than not. But nevertheless, it's, um, it is a public health issue. Yep. So this is just another d- dimension of that uh, issue that relates more to pathologists and the determination of the cause of death. But nevertheless, we'll see how that changes in, in time to come.
1: Thank you very much. Now, moving on to a different topic. So you are past president of TFt. You've um, influenced people all over the world with the Australian toxicology. You've got the uh, TFt Lifetime Achievement Award and now you're on the toxbot as well, so that's got to count up there too. But uh, you're founder of Factor. That was about 10 years ago. Yes. Um, how do you how have you seen the organisation evolve over that time?
3: Yeah, look, I'm really um, impressed by the way our association has grown in those 10 years. 10 years ago, we had a meeting in Melbourne, and everyone who attended over 100 people thought it was a good idea, which, you know, it's, uh, we didn't have really a forum for both clinical and forensic colleges in this country and New Zealand. So we started off that association, and this year is the 10th year. Yeah, it's amazing. And we have 100, 140, 150 people here. The papers are incredibly good-quality papers. And also, importantly, a lot of young people there. Yep. So traditionally, and even in TF, in the early of TF, they're mainly older practitioners. Very few younger practitioners, and maybe they didn't get the opportunity to travel to those meetings. Um, but now, both TF and also in our factor, we see a lot of younger people there. And they're great presentations from all around the country. So that's impressive to see them, and they'll be people from which we'll run labs in exactly, the future. Yeah, yeah. and they'll
1: hopefully provide younger people as they get older, provide younger people that come into the organisation, the same sort of hospitality that, that you have and the older members of these groups have. Yeah, absolutely, so, yeah. 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 So thank you very much, Olaf. No, my and, pleasure. Uh... Okay, here I am with Michael Robertson. Uh, today, Michael, you gave a talk about the new oral fluid standard revision. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
4: Yeah, um, I gave a fairly lengthy discussion to the group about the uh, the, the recent updated oral fluid standard that's just been published by Standards Australia, which incorporates both uh, Australian interests and New Zealand interests. What precipitated this revision? Well, the first, the first standard was published in 2006, which really assisted in um, bringing together a, a, a wide group of people that were doing oral fluid testing at the time and giving them some guidance on how to do it if they wanted to do it. Obviously a number of years have passed since the 2006 standard was prepared, Uh, devices have changed a lot, Uh, there's been a lot of new requirements, new drugs, so on and so forth, and uh, our accrediting body basically identified some deficiencies in that, the update or the requirement for an update, and so uh, the, the update's taken in the order of about sort of three to four years to To get to this point. So what were the key areas that were updated? Well, obviously having to deal with some of the deficiencies that were identified, which was really around uh, device capability and demonstrating that devices could do what people thought they could do. So these are the
1: on-site testing devices that people go out to work sites
4: with? (laughs) Correct. That's right. And that really, it was really, this this standard is um, really the only standard in the world that assists in giving organisations that want to do on-site testing, as opposed to just on-site collection, but actually on-site testing for drugs, really giving them some guidance in, uh, in, in how to do that testing. And uh, part of that was things like uh, required quality control testing, okay. uh, device capability, these sorts of things for that on-site testing.
1: So the original standard, didn't, did that include any cut-offs?
4: No, so the original standard, as I said, was really just a guidance document. So it gave people some recommended target concentrations. So if you were testing for uh, drugs such as the amphetamines, uh, cannabis, uh, cocaine and and the opiates, they were really the only classes included at that point in time. And it was really just, if you're looking for them, these are the sorts of levels you should be looking at. uh, And these are the sorts of levels your devices should be capable of detecting, but yep. really they were just recommendations. There was okay. really nothing mandatory about the testing that was being performed.
1: Was there laboratory levels as included in the first standard? Yeah, so the laboratory, again,
4: had they had levels, um, again, really just recommended levels that when, uh, when, when an on-site device presumptively detects something... Uh, the sample is then sent to the laboratory, and again, it gave the laboratory some guidance in what sort of numbers they should have their methods validated to. Uh, so again, it was very much a, a sort of, here's an idea, here's, here's a way forward, here's some recommended approaches, without it really being more of a strict, a strict guideline.
1: So oral fluid, of course, throws up some complications, because unlike... Uh, blood or oral fluid there's different sort of collection devices and sometimes some of them involve dilution and some of them just involve a wipe so what do we we end up deciding to do are we doing a diluted oral fluid or
4: yeah well I mean you identify you know one of the problems with the industry is there's a lot of manufacturers out there and and, and some of them are devices are frankly quite poor yet they'll say they're quite good Um, some devices are, are quite good but haven't been demonstrated to be good Uh, Some devices are simply collecting NEAT fluid. Other devices use diluted fluid. So there's a whole range of issues then that we have to deal with when it comes to uh, both the collection, detection. Um, We've shied away from using numbers or or, or generating a concentration in the oral fluid and publishing that. Um, We've really focused on is the drug present or is it not
1: present. So you have a cut-off, but the laboratories don't have to report a concentration, or they shouldn't be reporting a concentration. They so, shouldn't be, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We've
4: certainly said in the standard, and we've made it fairly clear, that it's it's not recommended that laboratories publish a concentration, and that's really around interpretation. I mean, we, we really don't know what numbers necessarily mean, uh, so it's really around, uh, is the drug present, and if the drug's present, then the, the, the theory is it's been used relatively recently, um, and therefore the possibility of impairment is present. It's certainly not a test for impairment and shouldn't be interpreted that way, but it really tells us that the drug's been used relatively recently and it's, it's a standard that's meant to complement the urine standard, the Australian standard for urine uh, testing, which is really a case of has drug been used in the previous sort of 24, 48 hours uh, the two are meant to complement each other. There's uh, One's not meant
1: to replace the other. I should have mentioned earlier, you were the chair of the committee that would, that revised the standard. What sort of different groups were involved? I in know there was over 20 groups.
4: Yeah, so one of the challenges we had uh, with this committee was, you know, we had a, in the order of about 26 people around the table. Um, I was asked to chair uh, the, the committee, which, you know, was a great honour, given the importance of this standard. As an independent chair, so you weren't... That's right. I wasn't an advocate for anyone or anything other than to manage the process. Uh, My experience really covered all, everything from the laboratory testing right through to on-site testing and training. I've I've done that for a number of years. So I was in a nice position to be able to offer some suggestions and, and understand what was going on. But we certainly had a number of subject matter experts on the committee, but we also had a number of people, union representatives, uh, and some other uh, legal representatives who really weren't subject matter experts, uh, but were able to bring, I guess, a refreshing uh, perspective to the process and really challenge what to us scientists might have been uh, well understood and well accepted principles they were able to say "Well, prove it to us. Uh, and so they, they, they did stop us in our tracks on occasion and sort of make us have to demonstrate to them that what we've been saying for years is actually uh,
1: supported by the evidence. So you mentioned earlier this is the first of the standard of its kind in the world. Why why is it that Australia has been the first one? Do we have more oral fluid testing companies around the place? or Well, I think going on? It, uh, this standard is really uh,
4: for, for, for oral fluid testing for dr- drugs um, and it's really applicable to anyone that wants to do oral fluid testing but the, the majority of users of this standard will be workplace drug testing organisations and, uh, and, and in particular... Companies that do mining, high-risk type activities like, you know, mining, driving, construction, transport. Now, there's other guidances out there around the world in the transport industry, but given I think Australia's uh, got a lot of high-risk occupations, particularly in the mining sector. uh, This standard gets used widely in that in that industry, and therefore, and they want on-site testing, and that's very different to anywhere else in the world where. As I said earlier, it's really just collection and sending it to the lab and let's see if this person's used the drug. Whereas here in Australia and and now in New Zealand, there's very much that interest in uh, this person's at work, they've got drug in their oral fluid, we want to make a decision about what we do with that person today, uh, not in three days' time. And so they often will be stood down if they have something in their oral fluid. It doesn't have to be illegal, it may be a legal drug, but as we all know. Codeine for example. Codeine's a good example where uh, if someone's got codeine in their oral fluid they may be impaired and we may not want to put them behind the wheel of a large uh, train or a dump dumper or any of these sorts of things and so that's really where the standard gets used and and to date nowhere else in the world has really picked up on that valued that has chosen to go down that path Uh, and so here we are with really the first in first in the world.
1: That's good news congratulations on your achievements you should be really proud. You got such a diverse group of people together to get a document in place and and see how it goes moving forward. Yeah, thanks, Peter. And look, it's been a great process, and I think everyone enjoyed the
4: process. I mean, it was long and at times frustrating, but it was a uh, it was a good process. And I think everyone, with uh, a whole range of interests in the standard, came out of the process feeling like uh, the standard satisfies their needs. Um, there was an element of compromise certainly through the process, but. I think the document's come out really well. I think everyone can now use it and, and be confident of the results that they get when they do use it.
1: And it was published earlier this year, so it's now in effect. It is in so. effect. 2019. Earlier
4: in 2019, it's published. It is now the official document. Uh, so now there's laboratories scrambling to, uh, to, to, to update their methods and procedures, and there's on-site testing organizations scrambling to get their devices verified fit for purpose and so on and so forth so there's certainly a lot of activity happening in the industry at the moment um, and it can only uh, it can only go to improve the overall uh, science and the overall uh, reliability of the on-site drug testing in particular.
1: Okay thank you very much Michael Robertson congratulations again and uh, all the best. Cheers thanks Peter. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed these last couple of episodes from the Factor Conference.
1: Yeah, they were good fun. I think we'll do that again. What do you reckon?
0: Yeah, well, we liked it so much. The ToxPod is going on the road to TF in Birmingham in Ooh-hoo. a week or two.
1: Very excited. So, we'll be just grabbing a couple of people in corridors, hopefully having a quick chat about maybe some of the stuff they've been doing, maybe they'll have an interesting presentation and maybe some award winners towards the end of the week.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm leaving you to do all the work this time, Pete. Yes. I'm, I'm on home duties expecting the birth of my fourth child, so... Just you?
1: Yeah, I suppose that's a good enough excuse. I'll
0: let you off. But you've got a couple of excellent toxicologists doing a live episode on the Friday.
1: Yes, we've got Sarah Villa from Belgium and Luke Rodder from the United States joining us for a lunchtime session to do a live recording, so it should be interesting.
0: Sounds great. And if you want to contact us, as always, you can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you very much. i have got to catch a plane.
4: Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.taft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.